My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Katie Brandt is here to speak with us about her late husband, Mike, who passed at the devastating age of 33. Katie is an incredible advocate for the FTD community in many ways. She's a director of caregiver support services and public relations for the Massachusetts General Hospital FTD unit. She's a lead volunteer with the AFTD. She's a facilitator of the Boston area FTD support group. Katie is also a very dear friend. In my family, we refer to her as our angel, and she seems to have been sent from heaven to help us as we navigate this journey with my mom. I'm so honored that she is here with us today. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Katie. Rachel, thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be on your podcast, and thank you for that lovely introduction, and I'm honored to be a part of your family's journey. It's been a joy to know all of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I always appreciate the platform to share our family's journey because my husband was misdiagnosed by eight mental health and medical professionals. So I think a lot about the privilege that I have as an educated woman with wonderful health insurance at the time and maybe a little bit of chutzpah to keep going (laughs) from... (laughs) one office to another to have doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists tell me that my husband was fine or depressed or severely depressed. And for me to say, I don't think so. And to keep going. It was my mother actually, who really pushed me the very first time to ask Mike's primary care physician during his annual checkup. My mom said, ask the doctor if Mike has a brain tumor. He's acting so weird. And I remember saying to my mom, mom, there's nothing wrong with his brain. But mom was right. And eight doctors later, and as his symptoms uh, began to increase, uh, we just really knew that something was wrong because Mike's early symptoms were all around personality changes. Mike was a guy who we spent a lot of time together He would be at work or school all day and come home and say, I missed you. Let's have a date. And it would be like Tuesday, you know, like just a regular. That's so sweet. (laughs) He was so sweet. And, and Mike was an avid reader. He used to read two or three newspapers a day. He had a bachelor's degree in theology and a master's in uh, philosophy from Boston college, graduated with honors from both. And um, I noticed that he was having trouble writing and reading. So we were trying to make a grocery list together and he couldn't spell the word avocado or rice. And he became less interested in connecting with friends, chatting with me. Also, Mike was a person 
we got married young. I was 22, he was 23. And Mike was fiercely protective of me. He always wanted to make sure that I was safe in the immediate, right? So if I told him, oh, I'm going to be leaving work late and it'll be dark when I walk to my car, he would say, well, call me as soon as you get in the car. But also in the larger sense, like he was thinking, what job did he have while I was in graduate school so he could be providing for me? And he would really talk about that. And suddenly um, he was making decisions around drinking or behaviors that were not safe like walking across a semi-frozen lake in early spring because we lived in a lake. Things that were really outside of his character. And that was a hard thing to explain to medical professionals, to really get them to believe that this was not the person that I married. And especially at such a young age. Now, when did you start to see some of these symptoms? So I really uh, noticed the symptoms robustly during my pregnancy with our son, Noah. So Mike and I were married for uh, five years when we found out that Noah was on the way. And I remember just little things like, you know, when you first find out you're pregnant, you usually don't tell a lot of people. Like Mike told everybody, which is fine, but usually you sort of keep it to yourself. So it was a little weird. I made mention that I might want to change the wallpaper in the room that would be the nursery and on a car ride home. And so he walked into the house and went upstairs and ripped off a big chunk of the the wallpaper, like a little bit impulsive. But I remember at the baby shower that they threw at his work, Mike loved coffee. And so somebody gave him a coffee mug and he opened the coffee mug and he said in front of like 50 people, oh, great, another coffee mug, and then just put it down with a thunk on the table. Mm. And I just thought, this isn't my husband, you know? Um, I can relate to a lot of those kind of awkward instances, and especially with someone that you know that's very sensitive and thoughtful. You're like, this is not something that they would do. Right, absolutely. And Mike was extraordinarily sensitive, and he really seemed to just lose an interest in anything that wasn't directly related to him. I think it's really important what you mentioned about being an advocate for your family member, because I can see a medical professional writing off some of these things as, you know, apathy as it relates to depression, loss of interest as it relates to depression. But like I said, we know our loved ones. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the first person or the last doctor that you finally saw that that mentioned FTD? Yeah, so I brought Mike to see seven different medical and mental health professionals around. We were living in Center Barnstead in New Hampshire, and I was working in Concord. So Concord, New Hampshire is a thriving city and not far from Boston, and so you know, you think that the medical professionals there had some experience, but none of them were able to diagnose him. And the seventh person was a neurologist who told me that Mike looked like he had a cyst in his brain, but she couldn't think of any reason for it. And there was no treatment for that. And she sent us home without a follow-up appointment. 
And as we were leaving the office, she called after us down the hall. Oh, and by the way, he probably shouldn't drive. That was literally it. What? <laughs> like that whole experience. And I was like, as if, yeah, I mean, there's so many things I could say now working with an amazing team that considers all the other aspects of life outside of the neurology clinic. But what happened was my father had been receiving care at uh, Beth Israel Neurology due to Alzheimer's disease. And so when I shared with my mother what this neurologist in the Concord practice had said, she said, that's it. You just got to get to Boston. And so she advocated on our behalf. And actually, Mike ended up in the office of the director of cognitive neurology uh, at Beth Israel, Dr. Albert Galliberta. And I swear that he diagnosed my husband in 20 minutes. Wow. What I will say about Dr. Galliberta is that he is a world-renowned expert in the field of neurology with a wide and varied experience. And he is a known neuroscientist with academic research experience. And so that primes him for being aware of rare and atypical neurological conditions. So he said, of course, we can care for your husband here at Beth Israel, but he has FTD and he's young. So you belong with Brad Dickerson at MGH. And I think of that also as just a wonderful, wonderfully compassionate thing that Dr. Galliberta did by saying, you know, we of course will want to care for your loved one, but here's someone who's dedicated their whole professional life to these very specific rare conditions. So that's where you belong. And so that started our connection with MGH. What incredible bedside manner for a doctor to say, there's someone better across, you know, the city that you can go and see. You know, really, you're right. To send us over to the specialty program, I think, was such a gift. You know, what were those those key insights that you gave the doctor that you think made him say, yes, this is FTD? Yeah, so he heard a few things about Mike that were big red flags. So number one, you've got a person in your office who has a high level of education, who his wife is reporting, his language and communication has become simpler he is unable to read and write as well as he used to be able to. And I think also um, a disinterest in those activities that he used to love in a very robust way. The second thing was disinhibition. So many people may be familiar with the cognitive test where they ask uh, the patient to give a list of F words, as many F words as they can think of. And so the very first F word that my husband thought of was a four-letter word. Again, sort of speaking to his personality and behavior, right? That's not... Right. His judgment, speaking to a doctor, yes. Right. And then the safety concerns. So some things with drinking and driving, some behaviors like walking across the lake, taking walks very late, like in the middle of the night in our neighborhood, and there was a specific incident where I got up in the middle of the night to nurse Noah, who was uh, seven and a half, maybe eight months old at the time. And I realized that Mike wasn't in bed. And I found him in the basement of our three-bedroom home with a small butane torch in his hand. 
And I wow. said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to fix the washing machine. Now the washing machine wasn't broken. And I think a lot about if I hadn't woken up, like what would have happened? What, cause the butane torch, you would have caught something on fire. And so just really thinking about safety and that this is a person who made very good decisions before in his life. He was an excellent, amazing, caring partner. He was a teacher. He was a volunteer in the community. Uh, he was well-liked by many, many family and friends. And so many things in his life had become disrupted, and he was unconcerned. I, I, I find that sometimes when you tell your story, this comes up in support group a lot. It's like, how did I not know? But most of us have never heard of FTD. So how would we know? I had never heard of FTD. And then that day that Mike was, um, that Dr. Galberta told me this is probably what it is. I went home and I read about it. And even though it was a terrible diagnosis, it was a relief because it was the first time that I read something and I was like, oh yeah, this is it. Like I knew right away that that's what it was. You got the diagnosis, went to MGH. Did you receive like an actual, okay, here's a PET scan. Here's the atrophy. We're going to call it FTD. What was sort of the next step after your referral? So Mike was diagnosed in February of 2009. So his PET scan was denied by our health insurance company. And by the time it was approved, he had deteriorated so much that the PET scan would not have been useful. And now we're thinking about these scans. This is 11 years ago. So now there's scans have advanced. Um, there's even, I think about the Dickerson lab, Brad Dickerson's work. There are more research opportunities. So there would have been other things that I could have gotten Mike connected with. But at the time, mm-hmm. uh, we really, we just had the CAT scan that was done at the hospital in New Hampshire, and then the neuropsychological testing and the clinical exam and the history that I provided. And Dr. Galberta, I think, felt confident in that diagnosis based on those things. And then his collaboration with Dr. Dickerson after he saw him also made him feel confident. And after diagnosis, what did you see? I think what happened next was a real shift for me to recognize that Mike did not have control over what he could and could not do. So I was in the very unique situation of caring for an infant. So when we think about how vulnerable a baby is and that it was really important for me to set up things so that um, everyone in our family could be safe. And Mike also had developed more childlike qualities, and he really um, was interested in spending time with his parents. And so um, his parents were able to take care of him full time for about nine months which was a real gift for Mike and his dad because Mike's dad did become sick and pass away 
um, shortly thereafter. And so I think about that time that they spent together where Mike was really obsessed with going to Starbucks all the time and taking long, long walks and eating copious amounts of Mexican food. And life was all about what he was interested in doing. And it was small things like, I want to watch this Simpsons episode. I want to eat this Mexican food or this ice cream and go on a walk. And I think about a lot of the struggles that families have and that patients have are when the expectations for what they can do don't meet their ability. Right. So there was no, Mike really was very calm and happy because immediately we took away all his responsibilities. He wasn't required to try and work. He wasn't required to do any household chores. It, like literally nothing was expected of him. And I think that many people struggle with this shift because you look at this adult person in your life as a peer, as a partner, as a fully formed functioning adult. And so what do you mean they're not capable of writing a check to pay the electric bill? What do you mean they can't go to the grocery store and pick up these 10 items? Um, so I do think that our experience was very unique in that there were people available to care for him. And then we got him in an adult day health program for a short period of time that he liked, but then his behaviors became too difficult mm -hmm. um, for them to be so young and active. Um, and then I was very lucky to find an amazing neuro rehabilitation center uh, nine miles away from my family home where they were skilled at caring for people who'd been in car accidents. So their frontal lobes were damaged. So the behaviors that Mike had were similar to those of the accident victims, the brain injured victims. And so they were capable of navigating his difficult behaviors. What was uh, different and sad about Mike was that his condition was progressive and Mike kept getting worse, but they were amazing. Wow. I was looking for a mass health bed for a 30-year-old male with behaviors and frontal temporal dementia, and I found a place nine miles away from my home. Like, that wow. was crazy. And then it closed six months after. Wow. One of the things that I just always like to mention is thinking about things you'd never thought you'd have to do is that many people talk to me about the promise, which is I promise to keep my loved one at home. And of course, I hadn't had time uh, to think about what am I going to do when my husband has dementia, right? Because we were so young, I didn't even think about it. But one of the things that I did realize was that Mike needed many hands to help him get through the day because he needed constant supervision and he needed someone to help him get dressed, to help him use the bathroom, to take his medication. So then he needed other people to do his laundry, to clean his area, to prepare his meals. And he needed to live in an environment that was safe from dangers. So in the secure memory unit where he lived, there was no stove that he could go and fiddle with the knobs. He couldn't just exit and walk out into the street like he could at our home. There was even a, an enclosed outdoor area. 
So Mike could go outside whenever he wanted and be in a locked area. And by making the choice to have Mike live in a skilled nursing facility, it allowed me to give up the tasks of laundry and medication and nighttime supervision and to do the one thing that only I could do, which was to be Mike's wife and advocate and to have that energy for the love and attention that he deserved uh, when I would visit with him and spend time with him. And then all of the advocacy and paperwork and all of that. But I, I really want to express that the families there, especially our family, received true love and care from the staff who worked at that facility. You're incredibly strong. I, I mean, you're our angel in our family. We have you on a pedestal. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about your next step after Mike passed? You are such a beautiful example of turning such a devastating situation into such a beautiful calling for your life. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what was going through your mind and how you got to that point and how you kind of pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and kept going and not only kept going, but I mean, you're such an inspiration to so many people and such a huge advocate for this community. So how did you, how did you get there? Tell us the secret. What is is the secret? I know people have asked me a lot. I'm so interested in the idea of resilience. I think um, I said once to someone that I was so mad that FTD felt like it was going to have all this power over my life. It was going to make me a widow at 32. It was going to take away Noah's dad. It was going to take away the future that Mike and I had planned together. And I really didn't want FTD to have the final word in Mike's life or our family's story. And I felt that, but it wasn't easy to put it into action. I was so tired um, at the end of Mike's journey. I uh, described myself as skinny, speckled, and sad because I developed hives at the end of Mike's life. I literally think my body was like, this is so difficult that I am going to tell you that I am so tired. And so I developed these chronic hives and I went to multiple doctors and I think they were literally grief hives and they went away after about a year and I ate more and went to the gym and gained some of my strength back and slept a lot. Um, of course, always getting up with Noah, but I would go to bed with him too, a lot of nights. Um, and I remember one night I couldn't sleep and I was thinking there has to be some way that I can tell our story. And I felt like if I could tell our story, maybe I could help other people. And I started by reaching out to the Heller School for Social Policy, which is at Brandeis University, where I got my master's in nonprofit management, because they teach a lot of um, family policy classes. And I think a lot about the policies that our family benefited from, because I made the decision to leave my job to care for Mike and Noah. And so we benefited from food assistance, social security, mass health. Um, And then 
I was able to swing back to work so that we don't utilize those supports now, but I'm very thankful that they were there when our family had a health crisis. And so one night I was sitting in bed at like one in the morning and I wrote an email to the dean at the Heller School and I just asked if I could be a speaker at any class where my story would be relevant. And one professor invited me in and I just spoke there in March right before the COVID uh, shutdown. And it was my 10th year going back. Wow. And, and that empowered me that my story was valuable. Um, and I, I contacted the association for FTD and I offered to share our story as part of their public awareness campaign. And then Dr. Brad Dickerson wanted to feature Mike in a medical grand rounds at MGH And he asked me to speak as the caregiver voice. And um, that experience was really unique because it was the first time that they'd had a family member speak at the medical rounds. And it really opened my eyes to this idea that I could maybe take my professional skill set and pivot it to doing some work. Because I just lost all my mojo for my old career and in the child welfare industry because this thing happened to us and I couldn't just walk away from it. Also, I think about all the love that my husband and my parents put into me, all the belief and faith they had in me as a person who could do something important one day. And I just really didn't want to let them down. That's beautiful, Katie. You haven't let anyone down. You've lifted so, so many people up. I mean, I have goosebumps. You are accepting the good. And that is what people, not necessarily everybody, but I think that's where people get into this sort of victimized of how could all of this happen to me? And I have to pick up all the pieces. You are like, how can I pick up the pieces, but step higher than I was before. You don't find people like you. So one of the things, if you spend time with me, you'll notice I'll say, I use the phrase, I'm so lucky because, and then like finish, I'll say something like, I already had my master's degree when Noah was born so I could pivot my career. Or, you know, I found this nursing home so close to my house or you know, Brad was willing to give me a chance by hiring me as a consultant to see what I could do and then part of whatever. So I said that once in front of my good friend, Mari, and she looked at me and she goes, excuse me, you are the unluckiest person I've ever met. And it's so funny because I actually don't think of myself that way at all. And so it is weird. Like I, I wish that I knew like what is there like a gene for resilience? I would love to know that because I've worked with hundreds of caregivers now and some caregivers are resilient and they are able to embrace their loved one. Like Maria's family is able to embrace Leah for who she is and focus on the love. Mm-hmm. And, and Art for Amelia is a beautiful, positive celebration. That's all about resilience. But how come Maria can do that? And then I have another family and they act like everything is so much worse. But, you know, you think about that, like, why? 
Why is it? And then think about siblings. Like I have not met a family yet where the siblings all have the same reaction. And it's weird because they're from the same gene pool, raised by the same pool. Right. What is it about what like outlook? I think through COVID and this experience with my mom, I have learned that mindset is everything. My mom would always say like, it's all about your mindset. So we'll jump into Mike's story. Why don't we start with where was he born? If you know big things that happened in his childhood, if you could share some of that. And then sort of take us into how you guys met and how your journey started. So Mike grew up in Northern Maine. He grew up in Holton, Maine, which is the last exit on 95 before Canada, way up there. And he was very active as a kid. And one of his uh, most favorite childhood experiences were his summers at Camp Caribou, which is also in Maine. And um, Mike's dad, my father-in-law, Noah's grandfather, Corky, um, was the waterfront director at this all-boys camp run by Bill and Martha Lerman. And um, he was the waterfront director there, I think, for 27 summers. And so Mike had the privilege of being able to attend the camp every summer where he could do archery and riflery and swimming and overnight campouts and s'mores forever. And he loved it because Mike was super social. He would make friends everywhere. And so a summer overnight camp was like definitely right up his alley. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And so what's interesting is Mike started going to that camp. I think that he was eight when he was old enough to participate as a camper. Then he was a counselor in training. And then he worked there every summer until the summer we got married. And when Noah was 10, he started asking me questions about things that, what things did my dad like to do when he was 10? And so of course made me think of camp. And I reached out to Bill and Martha, the owners of the camp, and they let me know that they had just been waiting for the day when they could have (laughs) Noah come to camp. So Noah had his first Camp Caribou summer um, last summer and loved it. And it was a really special experience for Noah because he was literally running in the same ground, swimming in the same lake, shooting in the same archery range as his dad did. And so Noah, of course, was devastated when COVID-19 took that away this summer. But I've assured Noah, you know, he's only 12 now. And so he has many summers ahead of him where he can be a part of the Camp Caribou family. Um, so I love that. Yeah, so that was sweet. a big part of Mike's childhood. And Mike uh, converted to Catholicism as a teenager. And it was very important for him to um, study and fully understand the Catholic faith. And so uh, he chose St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is where we met. Um, we both were freshmen the same year. And I remember meeting Mike for the first time. He was standing outside of Humanities Lecture with his long curly hair wet from a recent shower. 
mirrored wraparound sunglasses and he was <laughs> a denim on denim outfit and I was instantly attracted. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It was the denim on denim that got you. <laughs> and my roommate was also from Northern Maine. So apparently just everyone from Northern Maine knows each other. So she introduced me to Mike and we dated for a little while at St. Anselm, but then Mike broke up with me because he said he thought he wanted to be a priest. And I was young and I was like, uh, if Jesus is calling you, you should definitely go. Like, <laughs> I get in the way of that. And he spent a semester at a monastery in South Dakota. Um, and he came back junior year. And I noticed that he sort of appeared. He was always outside the psychology building. I would always see him in the cafeteria when I was there. And real casual, one day on a walk from the psych building to like the cafeteria where we're going to have lunch, he just mentioned that he wasn't going to be a priest anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Casually. Just real casual. <laughs> oh, so of course we started dating again. And I remember walking across the quad one night. We had only been dating for like three weeks after he decided he wasn't going to be a priest. And I remember thinking like, I am going to marry this boy. Um, of course oh. I didn't tell anyone cause that's crazy. Right. So I love it. You just knew. I just knew. And we uh, got married a couple of months after graduation. Uh, we had an old Buick that my parents gave us and some hand-me-down furniture from my grandmother's house. And we were, you know, off to take on the world with our $700 a month apartment. <laughs> um, and, you know, we were poor at uh, those first few years. And Mike was adamant that I would go to graduate school first um, because he said, you know, what if you get pregnant and then don't get to go? You have to go first. And it was so, so sweet. And Aww. so then after graduate school, when I started working, still, we didn't have very much money. And that's when Mike started his master's uh, program at Boston College. And I was wearing the same black pants to work like three times a week because I didn't have money for like this whole professional wardrobe. Right. You know, and, um, the, that first Christmas, Mike started obviously in September and that first Christmas, Mike had this like giant grin Christmas Eve. He was like, we have to open our presents. Now, listen, our bank account, literally some weeks, we would fill up the car with gas before we went to the grocery store. Otherwise, there wouldn't be enough money for gas. After. Oh, my God. And so one of the presents that he gave me, it's a podcast, so I was going to say I still have, <laughs> was an Aunt Taylor gift card for $330. And wow. The perfect place for work pants. The perfect place for work pants. This was like in 2004. So $330. And I was like, excuse me, I know how much money is in our shared bank account. What are you thinking? You're crazy. And he had this like just giant smile. He couldn't even talk. He was so happy. And he said that he realized when he got to BC that they would pay students cash to pick up trash after games in the stadium. And so he picked up trash in secret for an entire semester. And he said that was perfect because if he had a check, and deposited it, I would have seen it. And so he kept it a secret for a whole semester and then bought me this gift card. 
And I, of course, I was like over the moon about it. Literally, I still have the gift card. It's in a drawer in my bedroom today. Oh my God. I wish people could see me in Rachel's faces. I, I actually, <laughs> I'm glad they cannot. I am a mess. Like who? So oh I was of course, on and on about how amazing uh, she was or, or whatever. And he said to me, well, I did buy a couple beers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that story. What is so important about that story and about Mike is that he noticed something about me. He noticed that I was trying really hard to bring in a paycheck for our tiny family while he was in school and that I didn't really have everything that I needed to go out in the workforce because we were just making our way. And to think about him really seeking a way to help me and to do it in a way that was so selfless because he didn't let me know that at a time when he was struggling to keep up with this huge course load and he had a work study job that he picked up an extra job just so that I could have work clothes and from a store that I loved. He also got the gift card at a place that I loved to shop. So I think really signifies his character and how much he was good at caring for other people in his life. That's so thoughtful too for a a young man. What was he? Twenty (laughs) three. He's 24. 24. At 24, wow. I think my husband was like, so are we going to do takeout or are you cooking? Mike. <laughs> Take notes from Mike here. Mike, I used to hate to get in the bed at night. Like, you know how the bed's cold when you first get in? So while I was brushing my teeth, Mike would lay on my side of the bed. And then when I would walk Stop. in the room. He would move over oh. to his side so that when I got in bed, my side was warm. Oh. Wow. Well, it sounds like he was what we all want. He looked, he sounds <laughs> like he was from a romantic comedy. Like, you, <laughs> what did he do after college? Um, so after he got his degree, he really wanted to be a teacher. And so, uh, we were so lucky that he was hired at St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Dover, New Hampshire, where the signature class that he taught, he was a theology teacher, and the signature class he taught was Christian Moral Life, um, where Mike was really helping the teens to think about what does religion have to do with the life that you're living every day? And it's not about being a perfect person, but it's about just as you're becoming an adult, thinking about how your behaviors, your decisions, the way you are in the world, how does that match your faith? And um, he, Mike actually was very good at connecting with teenagers. So again, this is an example of how Mike had an incredibly um, well-developed ability to connect with people. And he was incredibly interested in learning about other individuals um, and just hearing their stories. Walk us through sort of where he was in his life right at diagnosis. Was he still teaching? 
So um, our son Noah was born at the end of March, two days after Mike's birthday, actually. I really, I have this huge affinity for people born in March. My best friend was born in March. Mike, My husband. There you go. Your husband, another amazing Hello, life, Mike. March baby. Mm-hmm. And Noah's due date was the first, it was April 4th. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to have a March baby. And my doctor was like, well, I don't think so. This is your first baby. You're definitely going to go late. And sure enough, he was born March 29th, which is so cute. Um, so I was on maternity leave, April, May, and June. And then Mike and I had made the decision that he was going to take one year off from being a high school teacher and stay home with Noah because I had an amazing job at the New Hampshire Child Welfare Agency working for the state, great health insurance, wonderful hours. And Mike was also going, he had started a small business called KNM Compnet Design, where he did web design work, um, like just for different companies. He was really good at writing code and doing all these things with computers. Um, and so we figured out that he could do his work and probably pick up a couple adjunct classes. He'd stay close to people at St. Anselm and we would be able to juggle that and Noah wouldn't need daycare that first year. That was our plan. So I think in a lot of ways that I am very thankful that even though that plan didn't work out for our family because of FTD, I know that working in an environment with teenagers as a teacher and Mike having, um, you know, disinhibition and some executive functioning that potentially something negative could have happened. And I'm really glad that Mike was able to leave that community that he loves so much on a high note to preserve his memory, his personhood, his dignity. Um, and St. Thomas Aquinas High School was so generous and they honored me with the Lux and Tenebris Award a few years later, where I was able to go back after Mike passed away and give a speech at commencement and talk about the work that I've been doing and about Mike. Um, um, what a nice tribute. They are a wonderful community. Um, his hobbies. If he wasn't reading and he wasn't doing code, what would you find him doing? Um, Mike was really good around the house. He was always like thinking of some new project. He loved to cook with me. We'd cook together a lot. We'd watch shows. Um, you know, just I think we always like to go out for a drive. Because even if you don't really have money in your pocket to do anything, sometimes just a ride with the windows down and the tunes up um, can do a lot for you. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Katie, I'd love for you to tell the story about a drive that you were on with Mike. I don't know if you remember, you told me this and you got to the toll booth. Yeah, so early, we were. I remember we were in our Honda Accord and we were driving on 93 and we got to the Hooksit toll booth. And Mike and I never had a fast pass. And as we were approaching the, the toll booth, we were deep in conversation about what would happen if one of us died. And, um, you know, I was talking about what my ideas were, what I thought would happen if, if I were the one to pass away. And Mike was just going on and on about how he would be so heartbroken he'd never be able to replace me, of course. And as we approached the toll, he had the quarters in his hand and he had his arm hanging out the window and he turned and looked at me and he said, 
if I died, you'd find someone else. And he threw the money in the basket and sped away. And I think a lot about that moment and how the woman sitting next to him in that Honda CRV on that warm spring night is not the woman that I am today. I did find somebody else and that somebody else is me. Uh, I think really more empowered, um, just realizing that everything that I needed, I already have inside me. And um, I think that really just that confidence that Mike had in me um, is something that I've really held on to over this past decade without him. Thanks for having her share that one, Maria. God. <laughs> I think about it all the time. But glad I'm not wearing mascara. These are just mom bags. Like, (laughs) oh. But, you know, Maria's right, though, about perspective. Like, a lot of the stories that I tell, I mean, they are the stories from our life, the way things happen. But, like, I don't know. I could have a different perspective about that. I could tell that story and be like, Mike said I would find someone else and, he didn't send anybody yet. And I'm still a single parent. Like, I don't know. I could, right. It could be different, but I have really reflected on that moment. And like, yeah, I just, I used to be afraid to walk from my house to my mailbox at the end of the driveway when it was dark, like afraid to do that. I literally have traveled the world by myself now to talk about dementia. I consider myself a global advocate. Um, on behalf of families living with dementia in their lives. I've done so many things. Stood up in front of a podium and, and in front of hundreds of people and talked about my grief and loss. I mean, I, I just couldn't have imagined myself doing those things before because I didn't force myself to try. Hmm. Right? It was not. Gosh. It sounds like Mike just really gave you the confidence and the love to be who you are and to, to feel strong and to grow into the person that you're supposed to be. Sounds like he was just such an incredible partner that believed in you so much. Yes, that's the thing. And, you know, I, of course, I notice when people are talking about how they find their mate or what they're looking for in a mate. And a lot of times people talk about wanting to find someone with the same hobbies or interests. And Mike and I had a lot of interests that were not the same. Like he loved Star Trek. I, I tried really hard. I don't, <laughs> you know, he loved riflery and archery. I'm not interested in any of that. You know, he, his philosophy, which I'll read a piece from one of his philosophy papers. I never understood philosophy. I was married to a philosopher. I don't care about it at all. But we had this deep connection about our shared values, our ideas about what it means to be a partner, what it means to be part of a family. And I really felt like what was a win for me was a win for him and vice versa. We were a support to each other. And yeah, I just, that's my choice, right? To try to just carry that forward. So if you could pick a couple of words, how do you think... Mike would want to be remembered? Gregarious, giving, intelligent, dedicated, funny. 
loving, reliable. Now, if you could read us something that Mike has written and explain what it is. So Mike, um, as I mentioned, fierce passion for philosophy. So when I um, was preparing for the podcast, I looked at some of his old papers and I found a paper he wrote while he was a student at Boston College um, called A Journey to Heaven, Focus on the Design, Not the Work. And it's a paper where he's looking at some writings from Plotinus Um, that I'll just say what he said. In this essay, we will outline how man's tripartite soul, which resides in the intellect, heaven, and the world below, can escape from its continual focus on the world below and see from its heavenly position. And I didn't reread the entire 18 pages of the paper because I knew, that I, <laughs> I knew that I wouldn't really understand it. It was attached to an email. He did send it to me so that I could proof it for him in 2004, which I did. Um, but his, the concluding paragraph begins, it is the experience of beauty that has brought us to an understanding of how the ascent can occur. The experience brings us away from the fetters of our world and our focus on the parts of this world. It brings us to the unity and order of the intellect. In the experience of awe, we are staring at the intellect, not a simple part, but rather we are gazing at the whole. In staring at the perfect unity and beauty of the intellect, our focus is on the whole and not on a part. We are no longer fixated on this or that thing, but rather on the intellect as a whole. It is through the whole, the perfect unity of the parts, that beauty resides. We once again stand in our heavenly position. We have left the world below, flown back towards the all, refocused ourselves on the whole, and reunited ourselves with our heavenly partner so that we can share in the universal soul's governing and be the formative power that we once were. Thank you for listening. A special thank you to Katie for bravely sharing her story with us this week. If you're inspired and want to learn more about Katie, you can visit her website, loveisoutthereftd.org. We'll be releasing new episodes each week on Mondays. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. We've also set up a Facebook group called Remember Me Podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Association for FTD, you can do so on our Classy page, give.classy.org slash Remember Me Podcast. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is by Bailey Kent. Bailey Kent.